Hey, welcome to the Gospel Rant. I'm Dr. Bill Sinyard with Gospel App Ministries, www.gospel-app.com. Uh, contact us at any time. Love to hear your feedback. Look, we're in the middle of the Beatitudes. Even beyond that, we were looking at the, the background of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, but we're at the last of the Beatitudes today on persecution. So today we're going to wrap up the Beatitudes, and uh, the next time we're going to go directly into the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And with the background that we've built on the on the Beatitudes, I think the Sermon on the Mount will just pop off the page. So I said that the Beatitudes was the uh, cornerstone of the entire Sermon on the Mount, and the very first of the Beatitudes is the cornerstone of the Beatitudes, all right? So listen, at the end of this podcast, I'm going to do my interpretive screen version, uh, expanded translation of the Beatitudes so far. Uh, Love to get your feedback on that. I also want to announce something fun. We're changing podcast platforms. You shouldn't notice anything. You'll be able to get your podcast from wherever you did before. But I'm going to shift to Life Audio platform for hosting. You may ask why. Well, primarily exposure. They just have lots of podcasts by other Christian teachers and and lots of faithful followers, and we're hoping that others who are faithful listening to other podcasts on Life Audio platform will check us out. Uh, So if you go to lifeaudio.com, you will find dozens of other faith-centered podcasts in their network. They've got shows about prayer and Bible study and parenting and more. And by next week, they're going to have a gospel rant. So we're excited about that. And you're going to notice that there's going to be some brief advertising in the gospel rant. Uh, No worries. So God willing, the the next podcast will be hosted by Life Audio. And listen, I would appreciate it if you would just continue to spread the news about the gospel rant to family and friends and church. I, I deeply appreciate it. And by the way, uh, you will likely want to share the example that I'm going to talk about today. It's the strangest persecution that I've ever received. Uh, again, it's just crazy. But if you stayed with us, particularly through the Gospel Rant, going through the Sermon on the Mount, it's probably going to make some sense to you. It's so very, very human. All right, let's get going. We're at the very last of the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So listen, I mean, it's it's mind-blowing. Why would would people persecute someone who's just doing good to other people? Why would that cause jealousy or rage or or feeling like they're doing microaggressors of some sort. Well, it's the gospel message and how it hits real parts of our real brain, right? And I talked about three already. The gospel challenges all of our rightness. We need to repent of all of our righteousness, right? Someone said, we're we're not good anywhere enough, at least to get noticed by God. The child, the gospel challenges all of our rightness, which which makes us feel bad. And second, the gospel teaches that none of the so-called right ones are right enough. And no matter how good you are, I mean, compared to me, that's a pretty low bar. But no matter how good you are, you're not good enough to again get God's notice. Okay, 
And three, the gospel accuses the God professional right ones. I mean, think of the religious righteous. They're the ones that the gospel says are actually persecuting those who are really made right by Jesus. All right. Uh, If you're still confused by that, go back and take a look at that. But here's the example that I was talking about. It it, it just, at the time, it drove me crazy. Uh, I taught 10th and 11th grade uh, Bible at a Christian school a while back, uh, many years ago. And the topic that I was given for the year is the gospel and the Old and New Testament. It was a class. Again, it was a Christian school. Everybody had to take it. But you know what? It didn't it wasn't on their transcripts. It meant zero for their college aspirations. So you, you can see the difficulty as a teacher to get everybody to stay involved uh, and ongoing. They just had to pass my class, right? That's the idea. And many took it that way. And I get that. Look, no judgment for me. But to kind of hammer it in the kids' heads, man, I wanted to leave them with something. So I de- designed a final gospel exam. And this was the best thing I've ever, ever done. Um, many people have said this was one of the the few things in their Christian school that actually changed their lives. So a couple of weeks before the exam, I started scaring the kids, right? I'm not ashamed of it. I mean, I was really trying to get their attention. The the grade, the final was worth 75% of their final grade, 75%. Are you with me? And so they needed to get this one right. They needed to do well if they wanted a good grade in the class, if they wanted to pass. Now, I was helping them out. I handed out a list of study questions. And by the way, by study questions, I mean, these are questions. Some of these are on the test, not all of them. But if you go through and and study these questions, get your answers together, do it in a group, do whatever you want, talk to your pastor, didn't matter. Uh, But I'm going to take the test from these study questions. No surprises. But I'm telling you, the questions were way over the top. I mean, two or three pages of uh, small print, lots of, lots of, uh, lots of questions. And, and I started ragging on the kids a couple of weeks before the class, uh, before the final, that I just didn't think they were ready. I'm, I'm a little ashamed. I'm worried about them. And I said, look, you know, I love you guys, but it would be a real shame if you were back in my class next year. Uh, and then I even had in one particular year, I conspired with a student. She had to take it early. Uh, because she had to go out of town. So I conspired with her. I gave her the test in another room during a regular class time. But I told her I wanted her to do something. I wanted her, after she took the test, I wanted her to burst into the classroom in tears, throw the test on the ground, start crying and run out. I mean to tell you, she was brilliant. And that got the kids' attention. (laughs) So they had a week, uh, maybe even less than that, if I recall, to get ready for the test, and now they were scared. So um, on the day of the exam, I stood up in front of the class and I gave instructions. I reminded them that this this piece of paper was 75% of their grade. And so look, do the best you can. God bless you. Let's pray. <laughs> Go. And I looked down at my watch. Uh, so they had about you know 45 minutes to do it. It was a regular class. So about halfway through the 45-minute class, you could tell who are already coming back to my class the next year because they were goofing around. A couple were throwing pins in the air and laughing. I mean, they were just resigned to fail because it was a brutally hard test. Let me put it this way. I don't think I could finish the test in 45 minutes, and I wrote it. 
Are you, are you with me? It was an impossible test. Honestly, it was. Okay, then with 15 minutes left, so we're at about the 30-minute marker, I got the kids' attention again, and I said, uh, okay, if, if you're on track, you should be on question six by now, which, by the way, is impossible. It's ridiculous. They couldn't have been. And the class groaned. And, and uh, I said, look, uh, I forgot to tell you. I probably should have said this at the beginning. This might be a good time to say. I want to let you know how I'm grading the exam. It's a, an exam on the gospel, right? So here it is. If you get everything right, uh, 100%, you get an A+. Plus. Good job. But if you miss even one question or if I have to knock off, you know, dock some points on a particular question, uh, you get a zero on, on your grade. So it's 100% or zero. Okay. And I paused, stunned silence. And you would have thought, oh my goodness, you would have thought that I abused. It was, it was abusive. But, but then I said, okay, listen, um, here's the thing. Uh, there's another option. You can keep on taking this test and get the 100% or the zero that you have earned, or, or there's another option. You can bring your unfinished test up here, tear it in half, and throw it away in the trash bin right beside me. Now, if you do that, I'm going to give you the grade that I would give myself, and I'm going to give myself 100, right, an A+. plus. All right? Okay. So those are your options. Carry on. You have a little over 10 minutes now. Well, (laughs) a couple of kids jumped up and ran to the desk, tore up their exams and threw them away. These were the folks who were the the underperformers. These were folks who, you know, they didn't want to be there. They didn't study. This wasn't important to them. They had low grades, lower quartile in the class, right? I mean, you can almost predict this, right? Then there were a couple of people who raised their hands and wanted clarification, and I just repeated what I said. And eventually they went, hey, this sounds good. They got up. Then more got up until there was only one or two who refused to take my offer. They kept working. Each year, I did this three times over three years, and and somehow we kept it secret uh, because I swore the kids to secrecy. And each time, there was one or two who refused to take my offer. They refused the grade of 100%. And, you know, I I would stand there and I would try to beg them off the ledge. I would go, I would explain grace again, nothing. I would beg them to take me up on my offer, nothing, nothing. Um, and I, I would always do a debrief at, uh, after, you know, the last 10 minutes of class, after everybody was, was hooting and hollering because of the gift, I said, what about the final reminds you of the gospel? And it was amazing. The dialogue kids who would say, I just got it. It's not about my earning. It's about what Jesus earned on my behalf. Oh, it was so, so crystal clear. So I would say still that was the best teaching on the gospel that I did all year, maybe in my entire career. And I look, I would say this, and, and other st- students have said this, is they don't remember much else about the year-long class except the, the final. But back to persecution, I got a note from one of the righteous right? One of the two who refused to give me their exam and continued to take it. And it said something like this, Mr. Senyard, I hate you. I hate you. I hate you. That was it. That was his feedback on me and the test. 
And by the way, his parents ultimately got me fired from the school uh, for teaching uh, this gospel uh, that, that they didn't agree with. Now, look, I'm not judging the young man. Uh, I was shocked the first time it happened. But after a while, I wasn't even shocked. And I'm not questioning the, the young man's salvation. Not at all. I'm coming to see that this is the all-too-human righteous anger that just subconsciously bubbles up in the brain of righteous people, you know, so-called, when they're offered grace. Uh, Martin Luther described this offer of grace and the look that you get on people's faces like a, a cow looking at an open fence. You know, a cow's been locked up for so long and now it sees an open fence and it's just not quite sure what to make of it. And that's an image of this grace offer, right? And and sometimes it ignites in anger and shame and resentment towards those other people that are getting in, even though they haven't done the right work. And and it can be very irrational. It can be very uh, triggering. This gets me to the fourth aspect of, of how the gospel and persecution are linked. The gospel calls the formerly unright, right? These are the, the folks that haven't been doing right that the so-called right are persecuting, the gospel calls them God's prophets. Here's 5.12, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you, meaning you too. It's all upside down. Jesus calls those who were formerly ID'd by the religious as the unright, the marginalized, the religious failures, those who have come to him for healing, right? Not, the, not other authorities, not the temple down south. He calls it a great act of faith, and he calls them prophets, the latter prophets of God. Well, can you imagine how this went down in Jerusalem? I mean, the people on the hillside that was described to us, Jesus is calling them modern prophets because they're carrying the message of God. How would this have... Uh, been handled in Damascus or Lebanon, right? On these hillside, these people, prophets, men and women, it's, it's, it's shocking. So religious, more or less unchanged, without new hearts, would be the most miserable in heaven. And here's why they would look around and they'd be shocked and appalled at who is in heaven. Are you kidding me? He He's in? He made it? Well, that sort of devalues the property here. Her I can't believe, does God even know what she's done? I mean, look at me. I did all of that sacrificing when I was on planet Earth and all the work, right? And that person has a house in heaven as big as mine. Look, that's just going to drive the so-called righteous crazy. But who does God think he is anyway? If if both me and those people are equally worthy, something's wrong with God and his measuring stick. A religious moralist naturally likes the idea of heaven, but this God who embraces non-religious moralists is just not to their liking. So a, a, a professor, a high school Bible class teacher who's letting other people get 100% on the final, even though they didn't put the work in, it's, it's just maddening, right? I get it. I understand that from a, from a brain perspective, but not from a grace perspective. This is why the gospel is persecuted because it's upside down. But heaven will be filled with the unrighteous redeemed. Those who didn't earn a passing grade in my Bible class, for instance. And it's just less appealing to the moralist for that reason. 
they would have done it differently. By the way, me too. I'm a, I'm a reformed moralist. I'm a recovering Pharisee. So the persecution Jesus is talking about is a natural response of a proud, self-righteous people to the ease of entry into heaven that was taught and modeled by Jesus for him to look out on that hillside and say, you're enviable because I just said so. Well, that's crazy talk. Uh, Too easy. And by the way, entry into heaven is not easy. It's never easy. It's purchased at a severe price, extremely costly. It costs God, the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit so much. It's not cheap. It's just done by someone else. It's finished, and there's nothing that can be added. So any of those outcasts on the hillside in Galilee can get in, meaning none of them had done anything that would permanently disqualify them from entry, from being full and equal card-carrying sons and daughters in good standing. They're raised to resurrection life, the very same resurrection life that the most pious, sacrificial, lifelong Pharisee or Sadducee who also chooses to follow Jesus. You know, this very human persecuting spirit is captured in the parable of the workers in Matthew 20, verses 1 and following. You remember it. Uh, Jesus paid those who worked all day the same wage as those who had only worked part of the day. I mean, that's the parable. The gypped workers grumbled against the landowner. This is verse 12. These people who were hired last worked only an hour, they said, and you've made them equal to us and who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. You know, it's not fair. Verse 13, but he answered one of them, friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Well, take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last, right? It's fascinating. Jesus can't be any clearer to these righteous on the outside, angry on the inside, right? They're not with him or with God. They serve a different father. And Jesus can't be clearer to the failures on the hill at his feet. Rejoice! And greatly rejoice. So rejoice is Cairo and a different word, agalio. Man, dance a little because this is crazy. And remember who he is speaking to. These are the throwaways, the failures, the the folks, the, the religious outies, the people who would have been considered impure and unrighteous and unclean, people who have checked out for the most part of organized religion. And they've come to Jesus for healing. They didn't come to the temple in Jerusalem. They didn't come to the Pharisees or the Sadducees. They didn't come to the rules, the Torah, right? They came to Jesus um, because great is your wages. Your reward is based on what you have earned in heaven. And the reward there is mythos, uh, implied a a wage due to, to a person because of their effort, right? So he's saying it's your wage, what you've earned. And it is an earning. This is important. It's a bit of a mystery, a riddle. It is an earning, not an inheritance, not a gift, right? But on their own efforts, they haven't earned anything, not at all. And here's the resolution of the riddle, and we know, don't we? Jesus earned the earnings for them. They just received. Or better, what they had earned would would be, you know, hell, uh, being separate from God. They earned punishment for failure to acknowledge God and his son Jesus and to worship. But biblical righteousness is not earned by us, but given to us by the one who was righteous, Jesus, right? It was earned totally by Jesus 2,000 years ago, and it's freely given to those who 
enlightened by the Spirit, we come to the feet of Jesus and are empowered and motivated to throw our gospel exams in the garbage at the feet of the foot of the cross and receive the grade that Jesus earned. And then we're made celestially right. We get an A+. The religious, secular, and spiritual are going to despise that. What an amazing image. Remember from the beginning, Jesus was establishing a new Mount Sinai, a new Mount Zion with a new king, a new kingdom, a new priest. But there are also new prophets, all of those outcasts and marginalized folks, people like you and me who are on that hillside, the sick, the wounded, the oppressed, the ones who have come as they are to Jesus to be healed. And Jesus earned everything on their behalf, and he was pleased to do it. It cost him dearly. Their right has come strictly and unilaterally from him, and it cannot be removed no matter how intense the persecution. So blessed, 510, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All right. Um, So who is the object of the Beatitudes? Before I get into the expanded rendition, who is the object of of Jesus's words. Who is he preaching to? He's speaking to the unenviable in this world, right? That's the poor in spirit. They've experienced loss and hurt and wound. They can't move past them. They're mourning. They've lost face. They're disenfranchised. They're disempowered. They can't do anything about it. They want to fix. They want the world to be right, righteous, right? For God to smile upon them. They want a happily ever after. They are orphans here because they do not belong. They don't thrive here. They don't feel like image bearers of their creator. God, society says so, right? They're throwaways. Maybe that's you. But listen, this is not seven different kinds of people described by the Beatitudes, the first seven. It's the same person. It's the same person, the same type of person like you and me who has found that this world will not honor them, will not give them equal justice and equity and worth or security or joy or name. In fact, what they have found is this world is actually just using them and overlooks them. It disparages them in words and deeds and in inequity, racism, all those things. But does it take notice of them, right? They're discounted or mistreated or abused. And Jesus proclaims over them, described in the first seven of the Beatitudes, an adoption into the favor of God, Right? He promises them that in his arms, they're going to feel honor. They're going to feel value. They're going to feel empowerment, mercy. Uh, They're going to get blessings that are due a child of God in good standing. So in our language today, we talk about salvation and adoption, but don't think of this as some kind of theological technicality. Think that God, the good father, really loves them, really loves you, all because of Jesus. He actually cares. And his mission is to keep the light in your eyes ablaze. I'm a big Alanis Morissette fan. No kidding. Uh, I, I love how she speaks to women, particularly starting in the 90s, that when there was a real awakening. Um, I thought it was, it was heroic. She sang about, and still does, about empowerment and enfranchisement for women, part of that movement. And she recently, fairly recently, came out with another album. She's now a mom with children, but this time she's singing to them uh, about empowerment for them. So check check it out. It's ablaze. I wanted to play it, but it's copyright issues, but check it out. And if you listen to it, imagine that it's God's voice singing to you, Christian, God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, um, 
combined in single mission to keep the light in your eyes ablaze. So here it is. First thing that you'll notice is some separation from each other. Yes, it's a lie we've been believing since time immemorial. There was an apple, there was a snake, there was a division, there was a split, there was a conflict in the fabric of life. One became two, and then everyone was out for themselves. Everyone was pitted against each other. Conflict ruled the realm. All our devotions and temperaments are pulled from different wells. We seem to easily forget we are made of the same cells. To my boy, all that energy so vital. Love your hues and your blues in equal measure. Your comings and your goings aways. My mission is to, listen, to keep the light in your eyes ablaze. Yeah, that is totally right. What a great parenting thing. She goes on. Second thing you'll notice is that often we think that there's not enough. It might feel dark. It might feel lonely. And you wonder why you're here. You may be overcome with darkness and a sense of hopelessness. But it won't matter if you keep the core connected to the oneness. To my girl, all your innocence and fire. When you reach out, I'm here, hell or high water. This nest is never going away. My mission is to keep the light in your eyes ablaze. Oh my goodness. That's the spirit's job, my friends. That's the spirit's job. John Barclay describes the Jesus community and what necessarily happens when grace happens. Quote, within this community, honor does not have to be sought. All the honor that counts has already been given or will be given by God. Believers are freed from the need to establish their honor through competition or in retaliation against those who harm them, and they can afford to grant honor without reservation to others. In fact, Paul outlines a paradoxical inversion of the normal honor quest. In loving one another, believers strive to take the lead, not in claiming honor, but in giving it to one another. Because this is done in a reciprocal way, no one is left demeaned, but all are supported within a community where every member matters. Oh my goodness, that is so great. Ultimate grace and mercy is only found in the Christ community through the power of the Spirit as people depend more and more upon Him. Governments don't have that power. Forget trying to legislate this. The church does, not perfectly, that's for heaven, but there should be shadows and reflections of this in our pews and seats. This is for the church of Jesus filled with the Spirit, not for secular government. Jesus can do it. That's the power of the gospel. Here's Barclay again. The Christ event has released a new creative energy, a quality of social commitment sourced in the spirit and summarized as love. It's not surprising that love is prominent both explicitly and implicitly throughout this section of the letter. Thus, the social life of the assemblies formed by the gift is not just the consequence of the gift, but it's necessary practical expressions. So Jesus will continue to flesh it out, but it all fits under the overarching paradigm in, in chapter 5, verse 3. Now you were formerly unenviable, meaning no one wanted what you got or, or were getting. Nobody wanted to suffer what you were suffering. But now you're enviable because you are God's and he is yours. And that makes you persons of great important value. You can begin to experience it through the Holy Spirit in your inner being. Nothing will ever be the same. Just look at the light and my eyes ablaze as I look into yours. Then you will know this is not just a position, a contract. 
It demands and empowers transformation whenever you're looking into the eyes of others to keep their lights ablaze as well. Well, I can see I'm at 30 minutes, so I'm going to have to delay the interpretive reading of the Beatitudes. I'll pick that up in the next podcast. Sorry about that. Uh, but that's probably a good thing to do anyway, since I'm moving to a new platform. And listen, join me over there. Like I said, you won't have to do a thing. If you're getting the podcast, you will get it next week as well. And just let people know. All right. Thank you so much. Until next time, we'll see you on the Gospel Rant. Take heart, child of God. Hey there, it's Nicole Eunice from the How to Study the Bible podcast, and I'd love to invite you to join us as we weekly discover a passage of God's Word together. From beginning to end, from principles to practicals, we are here to make sure that God's Word is powerful and relevant to your life. If that sounds like something you're looking for, I would love to invite you to subscribe. You can go to lifeaudio.com and search How to Study the Bible, and we'll see you there.